Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly and their glory in their shame. With minds set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. It's been, I think, four years since I've been in this position, so um, I'm sure you'll bear with any rustiness that might be evident. Let's pray together before we look at this. Dear Lord, our loving Heavenly Father, 
as we come now to consider this portion of your word. We pray, help us to understand it and to learn from it, that we would be equipped to love and serve you in our lives. We ask it in the name of Christ. Amen. If I asked you the question, how are you doing? Or perhaps more specifically, how are you doing in your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ? How might you answer? That's a question, if we're Christians, to which we should always be interested to hear an answer from our friends in church and to which we should be willing to give an answer. How are you doing this morning? How are you doing, my friend, this morning at the beginning of this new year? It's perhaps a deeply penetrating question, which, if we're honest, we might not always want to answer with candor. But the beginning of a new year, I think, is an appropriate time to ask that question, first of ourselves and of each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. We'll come back to that question later. We haven't got time to cover the whole of this chapter this morning, but Paul here is drawing his letter to the Philippians to a close. He begins by encouraging the Philippian Christians to rejoice in the Lord and then assures them that it's no trouble for him to repeat some of the things that he had previously addressed when he was with them in person and in what he had written earlier on in his letter. Earlier on, he had emphasised the duty of unity in a world of unbelief and hostility. He had written in chapter 1, verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul, again, writes on these themes in our section, but lest any of the Philippian church members were tempted to drift off uh, as it was being read to them, he reminds them that to hear the same things is for their spiritual safety. The same sentiment could be applied to us. How easy it is to forget or perhaps more likely to have foundational spiritual truths crowded out by other things. That being the case, the new year is a good time to recalibrate our spiritual senses to what we find communicated to us in God's word. In the first part of this chapter, Paul again warns the Philippians against Judaizers, those who would seek to draw followers of Christ back into the old way of thinking, that of putting confidence in the flesh, those who put 
great stock on their own ethnic heritage and obedience to the law as a means of getting righteousness. Paul himself had been such a person, but 30 years previously had had a personal encounter with the risen Christ on the way to Damascus, which would totally transform his outlook on every aspect of life. What in his past life he had counted as gain, that is his ethnic pride at being a Hebrew of the Hebrews, his standing as a member of the law-abiding Pharisee sect, and even his persecution of the church. All of this he now counts as loss or rubbish. Why? Because, he says, of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. With his life experience, he is able to make a real comparison. And even after 30 years, Christ is so much better than what he had previously considered to be of great value in his life. And it's this new outlook of Paul's, which by this time had shaped his life for three decades, that we'll now come to consider. And in doing so, I hope to draw two things out for our attention. Firstly, that to follow Christ is to know Christ. And secondly, that to follow Christ is to be moving forward. So firstly, to follow Christ is to know Christ. Looking here at verse 10, Paul speaks of two particular ways in which he desires to know Christ, the power of his resurrection and in the sharing of his sufferings. Here's a question. Why do we, along with millions of others around the world, gather to worship on what is called in the English-speaking world Sunday? Why have followers of Christ from the earliest days of the church until now met on the first day of the week? Why will future generations of followers of Christ continue to gather on this day? What happened on this day in the week that made it so special? The Apostle John gives us a clue when he refers to it as the Lord's Day in the first chapter of the book of Revelation. It was on this day that the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead, the day on which death was conquered, the day on which the power of God over sin and darkness was supremely displayed, the death of death in the death and resurrection of Christ. When Paul, in verse 10, expresses the desire that he might know Christ, he specifically refers to the power of his resurrection. Our continuing to meet on this day in the week isn't arbitrary. We're making a statement. We also believe in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. We also believe in the power of his resurrection. To know Christ, Paul says, and the power of his resurrection. After 30 years, that's still what he wanted and it's what we should want too. Bernardo Cho was a friend of ours, part of our congregation, and is now a minister 
of a church in Sao Paulo, where he also uh, teaches in a seminary. And he recently published a book called The Plot of Salvation. I've put a copy in the church library in case you want to read it. And in that book, Bernardo writes about the resurrection. The empty tomb thus revealed that Jesus Christ was indeed the only, the only one ever since the creation of the cosmos over whom death could not reign. As a result, the resurrection demonstrated that Jesus had really been the ideal human being, the faithful Israelite, and it proved in time and space that Jesus' words and deeds were real and true. In him, God's promises to Abraham and to David were at last fulfilled. Israel's story was brought to its culmination. The new creation and the new exodus had really begun. The path of autonomy was overcome. The kingdom of God was inaugurated. The restoration of God's image and humanity was initiated. Chaos was tamed. The demons were put in their proper place and human vocation was perfectly fulfilled. The point being that Christ's resurrection is central to the plot of salvation, to God's plan for the redemption of humanity. So much depends on Jesus, God the Son, having died and then risen from the dead. Without it, we would not be meeting just now because there would be no Lord's Day. But we might ask when Paul speaks of the power of Christ's resurrection, what exactly is he referring to? He's referring to the power of God displayed in the event of the resurrection. When Paul uses this word power in his teaching about salvation, he's usually referring to God's power to save. The gospel, he says in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Likewise, in his first letter to the Corinthians, the apostle writes that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The resurrection is the supreme example of God's power. Paul, having experienced that power first on the Damascus road and in the years since, continues to long for an ever-increasing supply of that power that comes from the risen and exalted Saviour. It was this resurrected Christ who sent the Holy Spirit into Paul's heart for the purpose of sanctification, that ongoing process of becoming more like Jesus, the perfect man, which is the God-given vocation or calling of every one of his followers from ancient times until now. This invites the question then, do we know that power? Have we experienced that power in our own lives? If we have done, do we continue to experience that power as we seek to faithfully follow Christ and live sanctified lives that commend him to those around us? I like hymns and find it helpful to see how people in different times have put into song their experience of the Christian life. The 18th century minister and hymn writer, Joseph Hart, has a line in one of his hymns that goes like this. 
True religion's more than notion. Something must be known and felt. True religion is something more than just a vague notion of some supernatural being. Something must be known and felt. That something, of course, or someone is the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's not just a cursory knowledge of Christ that's required. It's a deep knowledge that results in deep feeling. He must be known and felt. Notice what's being emphasised here by this long-departed preacher and hymn writer. Deep knowledge, deep feeling. Not only knowledge, not only feeling. Both intertwined, each one feeding the other. And this is the kind of knowledge that Paul speaks of when he writes that he would know him and the power of his resurrection. It's a knowledge that not only informs, but also fires the spiritual senses, a knowledge of the power of the resurrection and a knowledge with power, a dynamic knowledge that inspires us, drives us, assures us of our salvation and helps us in our heavenly calling as God's people. But you'll see, it's not just the power of Christ's resurrection which Paul wishes to know more of. He also, more ominously perhaps, expresses the desire to share in Christ's sufferings. For Paul, suffering for the sake of Christ and the cause of his church was a privilege. As he had written earlier on, which I read a few moments ago, it has been granted to you, to the Philippians, uh, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that is in me. We came across this idea back in September when Athol was teaching from Paul's second letter to his young protege, Timothy. And in that letter, probably written two or three years after the letter to the Philippians, so around AD 64 or 65, and Paul's final written communication before he died. You'll remember that Paul included the lines, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel, for which I'm suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. That's in chapter two of 2 Timothy. You'll recall from a few months ago that Paul approaching the end of his life and probably writing from prison in Rome was showing Timothy that he was to be profoundly shaped by a risen savior. And this is clearly a theme which Paul does not tire of pressing home to the very end of his ministry. Suffering can take uh, different forms. Probably most of us, most of us, have not experienced the kind of sufferings that Paul experienced in the first century. Brothers and sisters elsewhere in the world definitely do, as some of you are well aware. Perhaps there are different ways in our society in which we might have to suffer for Christ's sake. Suffering for Christ also includes the experience of being aware of the hurt of our own sins, the sins that caused the death of the Saviour. 
Paul writes of this kind of suffering in his letter to the church in Rome a few years before in Romans chapter 7. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul knew what it was to share in the sufferings of Christ, whether that be the physical experience of imprisonment or the awareness of the sin in his own life that caused the suffering of the sinless saviour. But Paul's desire to share in Christ's suffering shows not some warped desire to experience pain, but rather it's evidence of the intensity of Paul's longing to know more of Jesus. And as he writes, to be like him in his death or conformed to his death. What does he mean? Well, he means that he desires to be dead to sin, an idea which he again uses when writing to the Christians in Rome. We were buried, therefore, he writes, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And there you have it again. Everything hinges on the resurrection of Christ. It's in the power of Christ's resurrection that we can be conformed to Christ's death. After 30 years of following Christ, we see that Paul's desire remains to continue to know him. Is that your desire? Is that our desire as believers together? Will 2023 be a year in which you come to know Christ more and experience the power of his resurrection and share in the fellowship of his sufferings. To be a follower of Christ is to know Christ. But we come now to consider what we find in verses 12 to 14 of this third chapter of Philippians, and that is to follow Christ is to be moving forward. I was speaking to a friend of mine recently who has a child approaching two years of age, and she told me something that I found very interesting. She said that she often takes her little boy out in the pram, and that according to certain research, that forward movement, that action of, of being moved forward is good for the development of the child's faculties. Now, I can't judge how well-founded that research is, but I was intrigued by the idea that it was inherently good for the child's healthy development for him to be moving forward. And the idea reminded me of this passage because here we see that it's good for a Christian to be always moving forward, always growing in grace and knowledge and understanding. We've seen Paul's desire to know Christ deeply and the power of his resurrection. And this is a desire that's been present for three decades since he first encountered Jesus on the Damascus Road. What kind of attitude has Paul maintained over those years? What kind of language does Paul use here to describe 
his approach to following Jesus. It's firstly the language of humility, and secondly, it's the language of athletic perseverance. It's the language of humility. In verse 12, Paul says, not that I have already obtained this. It's referring to to those things that he desires so much, that knowledge of Christ. Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul has for 30 years been teaching and serving the church in various ways, in different places. He's respected and considered by this time an elder statesman of the Christian community. But he's not complacent. He recognises his own need to carry on growing, to press on to make these things that he speaks of his own, knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection, that he may become more and more like him. St. Augustine, one of the early church fathers and a great character, in one of his many letters, about 350 years after Paul was instructing the Philippians, Augustine, he sends quite a long reply to a young student who had written to him asking his opinion on some complex philosophical questions. And Augustine was not, I think, uh, a man to suffer fools gladly. And he cuts to the chase with his young student and tells him, above all else, to seize and hold the truth as revealed in Jesus. Three things are required in this task, says Augustine. First, humility. Second, humility. Third, humility. Just as Paul was not afraid to repeat things, so Augustine writes to this student, this I would continue to repeat as often as you might ask direction. Unless humility come before, go with and follow every good action which we perform, being at once the object which we keep before our eyes, the support to which we cling, and the monitor by which we are restrained. Pride rests wholly from our hand any good work on which we are congratulating ourselves. Humility, humility, humility. Augustine was a learned man, to say the least, and doubtless he wanted his students to become competent scholars. But above all else, Augustine wanted people to grow in their knowledge of Jesus Christ. And for this, he says, humility was required. We're all different. Some perhaps are more prone to pride than others. Some seem to have a natural inclination to meekness. But all of us, being human, are naturally inclined to pride, um, whether that's sort of more obviously evident or not. I'm talking here about a pride which causes us to put too much confidence in our own abilities and achievements, or our knowledge, a pride which makes us resistant to learning, to admitting that we need to grow. Paul had certainly been a proud man. As we've seen from a human point of view, he had every reason to be proud, coming as he did from the tribe of Benjamin and having worked hard to become an expert in the law of God. But something happened in Paul's life to make him count these things as loss compared to the surpassing worth, the infinite value of knowing Christ. 
Paul's admittedly quite dramatic conversion experience wasn't a flash in the pan kind of moment. Paul's coming to know Jesus transformed his attitude forever. Never again could he place the same value on being born into a certain nation, on being a member of a highly regarded group of religious teachers, on being in his own proud words, blameless. Coming to personally know the perfect and sinless saviour has changed his outlook. His life from that moment until this moment has been lived with an air of humility. This is what leads him to make sure that the Philippians don't think he's claiming to have already achieved this knowledge of Christ that he desires, or that he knows, to, knows it to its full extent, the power of the resurrection. He's in the process of knowing these things. And after 30 years, He's still humble about any progress that he's made. It's the language of humility, but also Paul uses here the language of athletic perseverance. And this is language that we've come across before, uh, most recently in his second letter to Timothy. He writes there in the fourth chapter, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And remember that I said uh, 2 Timothy was Paul's final written communication. He speaks there of having finished the race. But here in this letter to the Philippians, we see him still in the midst of that race. And what's he doing? He writes, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And then he continues, brothers, brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I love the picture that we get from this word to press. There's something active about it, something energetic. It's a sporting word. In the realm of hunting, it would be taken for I pursue. In the realm of running, it would indicate, as Paul goes on to explain, straining forward for the finish line. At that finish line or goal he is straining towards, that on which his eyes are fixed, is in his words the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That goal was what Paul's eyes were fixed on as he ran this race. And if we're followers of Jesus, it's our goal too. But what exactly is Paul referring to? He said that he's pressing on to make these things his own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul has experienced the power of the call of God in his life to follow Christ. He's moved from darkness to light, from confidence in his own righteousness to confidence in Christ's righteousness. I hope that Many of you have also had that experience of coming to follow Christ. But he's not yet reached that state of perfection that he so desires. He knows that in this life, although his salvation is secure through the death and resurrection of Christ, that he's not yet in that state of perfection which he so desires. But that will only come with the new heavens and the new earth. This is the ultimate prize in mind the blessings of the resurrection life. This is what Paul is pressing on towards. 
whilst such blessings will be perfectly realized in eternity. To be a follower of Christ is to press on towards this point, having an increasing experience of that knowledge of Jesus that will one day be fully understood. Much more could be said about these ideas, but I hope at least that your appetite to consider these things has been wetted or re-wetted at the beginning of the year. As I draw to a close, I'll return to that question which I asked at the beginning. How are you doing? How are you, how are you doing in your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ? Can you answer that you're pressing on? This idea of pressing on, it shouldn't give us the idea that the basis of being a Christian is just trying your best to move forward. It's, it's not that at all. There is, as we see in Paul's life, a spiritual backstory to this act of pressing on. He assumed that the recipients of his letter also had a comparable spiritual backstory. They may not have shared his dramatic experience on the Damascus Road, but they had experienced the transformed way of thinking that comes from being united to Christ. If we too have experienced that grace in our lives, then that is what forms the backstory to our own pressing on towards the goal. To press on is to be curious about Christ, not to rest complacently in what you've already attained in your knowledge of Jesus, but to always be seeking to grow in your understanding, whether that be by devoting yourself to reading the scriptures, praying for the Lord to teach you more, seeking the input and help of fellow followers of Christ, giving attention to the ordinary means of grace, that's meeting together, listening to the preaching of the word, concentrating your mind as we share in the Lord's Supper together. All of these things are part and parcel of what it is to press on in your walk with Jesus. To follow him is to know him. And to follow him is to keep moving forward in the light of that knowledge. This morning, quite early, I was awake and the words of that old gospel song came to my mind. Um, and I thought that these words captured quite well what we should desire for ourselves and for each other as the new year progresses. You may well know these words. More about Jesus would I know, more of his grace to others show, more of his saving fullness see, more of his love who died for me. More about Jesus let me learn, more of his holy will discern. Spirit of God my teacher be, showing the things of Christ to me. As I said, much more could have been uh, said on these things, but I hope that this year, by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, we would all be granted that spirit of humility to move forward uh, in knowing Christ more uh, and that a result of that deeply felt knowledge, uh, we would be able to say in all sincerity when asked of our spiritual state that we are pressing on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you 
for the example of the Apostle Paul in this portion of your word. And we pray that we too, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would this year, whatever it holds, good and bad, press on in knowing Christ, your beloved Son, more. Help us, Lord, in these things. And even now, as we come to share in your supper together, strengthen us by casting our minds upwards to remember that in Christ's death for us, our sins have been forgiven, and that in his resurrection, you demonstrated your power over death. We ask these things in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen. Amen.